This ABA Journal podcast is brought to you by Westlaw Next, the most advanced technology combined with market-leading content and West's history of trusted editorial excellence. Helping legal professionals save time is what they've been doing for over 125 years. Learn more at westlawnext.com. You probably spend at least 40 hours a week at work. And if you think your job has a toxic work environment, it probably seems like much longer than that. So how can you find ways to make your time at work more enjoyable? I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and that's what we're discussing today at the ABA Journal Podcast. Joining me are John Beasley, a Georgia employment lawyer, Tracy Dibble, an Indiana human resources consultant, and Patricia Pippert, a Chicago consultant who specializes in personal management and development. First question for all of you. I have is if you work with a lot of people who don't really enjoy their jobs, and in fact maybe you don't like your job that much either, what can you do to find enjoyment while you're at work? Patricia, would you like to go first? Uh, sure. First of all, I, I guess I've, I've been in that situation before, unfortunately, and I, I, I think that you can always find seek out people who you do enjoy working with, who have something in common with you, finding the commonalities with other people and 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 just trying to spend more time with them also you know outside of work they also say too that if you can you know have a hobby that makes you feel good that sometimes you can take that feeling into the work with you well um Patricia this is John Beasley I, I kind of come at this from a legal perspective and so that's kind of the way I, I look at most things and and how the clients um, uh, when they come in and ask me questions I respond to them from a legal background, obviously, um, I specialize in employment law. Um, and when you have situations that you don't like as employees, um, if you're um, not man- non-management, non-supervisors, you do have um, legal rights under the National Labor Relations Act, even if you're in a non-union setting or in a right-to-work state, to collectively get together and discuss your work situations and and even take those to management without uh, fear of reprisal, or if you did have some kind of reprisal, you you would have a, a cause of action through the NLRB. Well, I'm curious, John, have you advised clients to do that, and if so, how did it work out for them? Many times it comes, uh, they come to me after they've already had a problem. Um, sure. And one of the things that I I would would say to anybody um, experiencing sort of a toxic work environment um, is to consult an employment lawyer, just because. There are so many different employment issues that you want to be aware of. Probably the most important one is that if you don't have a claim, what kinds of situations you might be facing if you are going to uh, to raise an issue or report it. If I could jump in, this is Tracy. Mm-hmm. I've seen more of before someone goes to an attorney, I'm usually in the HR position, and I do think that, first of all, you need to figure out why someone is so unhappy, why that person is unhappy. They originally accepted the position because there was something of interest, something they liked about it. And my advice is usually to try to find those things that are working well, similar to what Patricia is saying, you know, align yourself with people who do bring you joy from from the work that you're doing and try to problem solve and bring those issues along the lines of what John is saying. Bring those issues to management if you can and see if you can solve the problems. But I'm a big believer of not just complaining and bringing up problems, but offering solutions if you're going to bring up a problem. Have some idea about how to solve that yourself. And, oh. and building on that, Tracy, you said that uh, 
assuming they, they took that job for a reason, they thought they were going to like it, one also has to figure out maybe they just jumped on the bandwagon to the job because it was a job, especially in this economy. Mm-hmm. So in some of the career classes that I teach with people, I know it seems like a luxury sometimes, but to really analyze what are your values personally, what what does bring you joy in work, what doesn't bring you joy, are you all about wealth or are you about economic security? Those are two different things. Are you about getting a lot of recognition in your job or having a lot of family happiness? And does it does need, does it need to be a family friendly? What are your skills that you really enjoy using, and will this job use it? So. Sometimes if somebody's not enjoying themselves at work and they are going to, unfortunately, leave and go elsewhere, well, let's analyze what what the new job is like and is it going to meet your values and your needs and satisfy those any better than the job that you just left. I agree with that. Yeah, and just to follow up on what both of you all said, I think um, one of the things that you don't want to, to, as an employee, you don't want to find yourself in an isolated situation where you're the only one complaining uh, if you can avoid that, um, because that does tend to, to backfire. Yeah. So we talked about what you can do as an employee. What if you're in management and you have a really unhappy staff? What would you advise them to do? Tracy, do you want to go ahead first? Um, sure. You know, we've, we've done some different things. I've been involved with employee opinion surveys, and usually if you protect, protect the anonymity of the participants, they feel very um, free to express themselves in that forum because you may have some employees who will not speak out no matter how unhappy they are, but you know they're unhappy. So it will give you a sense of a group um, and maybe be able to look for trends. Exit interviews are a good way to collect data and look for trends and information that you can then target those problems without maybe singling out an individual. But I, I do think that first you need to look at is there a systemic problem in the organization? Is there a trust issue? You know, is, a, is it a culture issue because if there are a lot of employees unhappy, or is it the manager themselves? Maybe the manager really isn't listening to their staff. Maybe that's Well, it. and how do you get management to actively listen? Because I would guess that a lot of times when you have an unhappy staff, you also have an unhappy manager. True. It has to start at the top. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that if you don't have your executive group, your leadership, modeling healthy behaviors and creating an open-door climate or looking for um, opportunities to prove that they are trustworthy, that they're willing to listen, that they will take ideas. If you don't have that, you can talk all day to staff, and they know that nothing's going to change, nothing's going to get done. But you're right, the manager may be very unhappy too. So um, if you're lucky enough to have someone like an HR person present in an organization, they can, you know, you kind of walk that fine line where you're looking at the employee's rights, and um, obligations. You're also looking at protecting the organization. You're looking at it legally. But you can also be kind of a a consultant to everyone and help them understand each other. So if you're in that unique situation. um, But you you do have to have some support from leadership in order to even do that. I'll just jump in. When when you asked that question, it, it reminded me of a situation I was in where I was unhappy and so were a couple of the other staff members. And it had nothing to do with anything systemic or the organization. We all just happened to be going through some things in our own personal lives simultaneously. They were making us unhappy. And our manager had the, the, the decency and the smarts to sit down with each of us individually and just said, can I just comment on what I've noticed? You know, I, I know what you're normally like when you, when you work, and I've, I've noticed for some time now but I, I, I see that you seem to have been unhappy. And she literally said, and, and I'd like to know if there's something that I'm doing that's contributing to that unhappiness. Because as a manager, you know, I, I, the best way for me to grow is to, is to hear from the people that I manage. 
and it turns out that she found out in some cases it was things she had no control over. It was, you know, outside. It was personal life. And sometimes it did, it was a little thing at work that she did have control over and that she could fix for the staff. So I, I think a lot of managers are afraid to ask that question because they feel like if it's outside of their control, I shouldn't have even asked and opened up that Pandora's box to begin with. But sometimes by asking the question privately and individually to each employee, you might find out it's a simple little thing and you can fix it. You know, John, what do you think about that in terms of opening up the Pandora's box? Uh, well, I think you know, the, the, the hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil, that doesn't work in the employment setting. The other thing that doesn't work, and Tracy mentioned this, is, um, is singling somebody out for discipline and try, in order to try and create or a remedy of the, uh, for the problem in, in, a, in a quick way. That's a, that's a good way to, result, to end up in a lawsuit of some kind. Um, much better is, is the open-door type of policy, engaging in discussion where there's a real problem, where there's a group dynamic problem. Mediation can work. Um, some companies have mediation programs internally. There's not that many of those, but I've seen where those can work wonders in trying to bring uh, a solution to a, a group problem. Um, the alternative is often discipline, which then results in adversarial situations. Tracy, do you want to add something? I do. Um, to piggyback on what Patricia said, you know, she describes a, a good manager. That's a skilled manager who's willing to sit down with their staff and actually say, you know, can you tell me, and, and like you said, open the Pandora's box. Oftentimes managers, what I've seen is they're afraid to ask those questions because they don't know what those answers are going to be, and they're sometimes fearful not only that they can't control what's happening, but some of them don't want to know about an employee's personal life or don't want, they're worried legally that they could get into trouble. And they're also afraid that it could be them, that they may be the problem, and they may be unwilling to really look at themselves and what they can do differently. It takes a sophisticated manager, I think, and someone who is self-aware to be able to listen to that type of feedback. It's hard for them sometimes to do. So it, it does take a skilled manager, I believe. Right. It, it, it takes somebody with a, with a good, strong ego who is not going to have their feelings hurt by hearing that it may be doing, they're doing something to contribute to the problem. Right. right. And I can say, you know, you, if a manager is going to do that, they certainly ought to engage HR because what's going to happen is you, you may get some employees that complain of discrimination or complain of other things that fall into a protected category, and that's going to need to be addressed. And, and that's, I mean, that's the point of the open door type of situation is to address those problems and address the employee concerns. And so they, they shouldn't be heading off single-handedly to deal with these things. They really need to consult with HR and, and, and do this in a, an open way that doesn't allow for, for, for possibilities of retaliation. John, I'm curious, when lawyers or the managers at firms or government offices, do you find that they tend to be pretty willing to listen to HR, or is it maybe more common to problem that they don't listen to HR? Um, well, it depends, I guess, how high up in management you're talking about. If you're a manager that regularly deals with HR, um, a lot of the mid- and upper-level managers that come to me, they don't have a problem with dealing with HR. Um, employees, the, the lower-level employees, need to be very careful, and, and, and that's one of the reasons I think that employees need to consult with an attorney before they make complaints or decide on a course of action because, as Tracy said, I mean, HR is walking a fine line, but you know, ultimately, if there comes some type of adversarial action, they're there to protect the company. And, and I've rarely seen HR take the other side. So okay. employees do need to be very careful. And 
If you do decide to go to HR, what is the best way to voice your complaint or concern in a way the department will listen to you? And also, what should you ask yourself before you go? Because if you're someone that goes to HR a fair amount, you know, with issues that are maybe more personal and nothing, you know, is, is really terrible about it, they're probably not going to listen to you after a bit would be my guess. I would agree with that. I think that if you have someone who is constantly bringing up every little issue, like, you know, we don't like what's in the lunchroom or, you know, frivolous things that are not of significance, it is more difficult to really take them seriously when they do have an issue. So I think credibility is important. And HR professionals, you know, we're human, but we do look at the credibility of the staff member coming to us. Usually the person who brings something to you who has not complained and they, they usually bring you the significant things, and those are the ones that really you take notice to because you realize, you know, this person doesn't complain about every little thing. This is something we should look into. Or, obviously, if it's anything that is a protected class situation or a discrimination situation, you, you have an obligation to investigate that right away. Well, something that John was saying about employees having to be careful, if I could mention something about that. Um, they do have to be careful. However, not all HR professionals are created equal. I've seen some people who really are not very credible in the profession, who don't really take it seriously, and who care a little bit more about their ego, their their career, as opposed to doing the right thing. And so I would agree with that statement that John made. You do have to be careful about it. However, there are also some really great people out there, too. And so you do need to know who you're bringing it to. Um, and you'll, you'll know. You talk to the staff members at any organization, they will tell you. They know whether or not their HR department is one that they can trust that they can go to because the employees talk. And all it takes is a couple of situations that an HR person handles credibly, professionally, for that reputation to be established. And if people are not fired without some sort of due process, if you know they're not blindsided, if they're treated, if they're treated fairly, that reputation helps HR, and then the employees will come and talk to them a little bit more. But you do have to be careful about what you, what you bring to them and also how often you're bringing it. And I always ask the questions, have you talked to the person you're having the issue with first? And if, if they haven't done any of that due diligence, that's where I send them back. I send them back I to try to work it out in, in, in themselves. People want to go running to HR, and I, and, and I think that comes from the baggage we bring to work from our childhoods of when your sibling or some friend did something you didn't like, what did you do? You ran and tattled. You went and told the teacher, you told a parent, and if that sort of conflict resolution strategy worked for you, that's exactly what people bring into the workplace. So they're, they're so ready to run to HR or somebody else. And that's the first thing I say too, Tracy, is have you addressed this with the individual that's causing you some agita and talked about it with them first? I understand that people are afraid to do that because they might not have been educated in how to give feedback to another individual without hurting feelings and causing more problems, and then, John, maybe it ends up on your desk. I don't know. Um, but, but something else, Tracy, that I want to piggyback, and I think you said it earlier, too, that when somebody does come to HR with a complaint or an issue, you said to have a solution attached. I think most people who go to HR, the, the biggest mistake they make is, me, 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 I'm having this problem. It's making my life miserable, and they don't think in terms of why should HR listen? Why should HR care? How is this impacting either HR or the productivity of the organization, or not that employees would understand the legal nature of things, but what, what is the, a larger impact to this? Why should HR care about this complaint? Absolutely. And, and from a legal perspective, um, there, you know, there are corporate defenses to claims uh, of discrimination where an employee has, has not taken advantage of preventative or corrective opportunities. Right. You've got to make a record. 
Right. Um, and, and, and Or otherwise tried to avoid the harm. Um, the only caveat to go into the person that you have a problem with is, I mean, if it is something really serious, like um, a really serious sexual harassment issue or physical um, confrontation or something like that, that you know, may not be possible. But companies, uh, very few these days, won't have some type of reporting mechanism or, or, or procedure in place, and, and that is uh, incumbent on the employee to take advantage of. Patricia, let's go back. You mentioned, uh, both you and Tracy mentioned, usually HR will say, have you spoke with the person you're having an issue with? What sort of advice do you have for someone to talk to someone they have an issue with in a professional way that doesn't make things worse, you know, providing, of course, it's not some something very serious like what John mentioned? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it, it usually the, the conversations that I've coached people on or you know, somebody missed a deadline or showed up late or looked at you sideways. You know, it, it's nothing you know, t- terribly serious, but it's making the workplace be, as you said, toxic. I usually coach people to take a look at how we normally give feedback to people. If left to our own devices, how have we been taught to give feedback? And it usually starts with the word you. You did this, you did that, and the, and the index finger is usually pointing at the same time. And when I act it out with them and say, well, how would you feel being on the other side of that message, they realize, well, I'd be kind of defensive. I wouldn't want to hear it that way. So I, I teach them how to use what we call I messages, where you start with the, the – the reason we want to give feedback to people is because we've had a, a response. We've had a reaction to what they've done. So I, I coach them to say something like, I'm, I'm concerned or I was frustrated or I was upset when I noticed that, you know, the deadline was missed or when I noticed that you came in late for the meeting. It doesn't mean that you can't ever use the word you. You just don't want to lead the sentence or lead the feedback with you because it puts people on the defensive. And I also tend to coach them on their tone of voice because, again, when people are giving feedback and addressing issues with each other, if all the emotion is coming out and all the – nobody wants to hear that. It can be whiny. It can be complainy. It can be very offensive. So I usually coach them to, to calm their voice down and calm themselves down, too, and to start with I. I'm concerned. I'm frustrated. I'm whatever emotion you're feeling. I, I would say that that probably also translates to, to emails. I mean, I, I constantly am talking to my clients about the tone of their emails. Um, I, I think that can create a real problem um, in, in the workplace. You know what I've, I've read recently about email, John, is that what a lot of us don't realize is that when you send an email, it really is almost a blank slate. And unless you deliberately insert a tone that you want to insert, people will read into it whatever they want. Right. So if you want somebody to do something differently, the pleases and thank yous and can you do me a favors can go a long way. Yeah, that's As- a great piece of advice because many of my clients um, that come to me with work environments that have just gone completely downhill, it a lot of times goes back to the email situation and, and what someone has interpreted from some email. and. And it becomes very difficult, but that's great great advice, Patricia. Also, if I could say regarding emails, there have been a lot of employee relations situations I've handled where an email does become kind of the smoking gun. I mean, it's the thing that you end up hanging your hat on. It's good documentation if you really want to document a conversation, but if you're having a difficult issue with someone, I think that it makes it so much worse to try to solve that via email, particularly by Carbon, you know, by copying other people or blind copying. I'm not a fan of but blind. But it really makes people upset, huh? When you take it out, when you take it out and show other people, I think. 
Absolutely. It's, it's, yeah. a public, it's basically you're, you're, you know, in a sense, humiliating them or having this difficult conversation in front of someone else or worse, you're blind copying someone else yeah, and, that and then they find out about it. And that erodes trust really fast in an organization, I think. It's really too bad that the BCC is even there. And, and I, I teach in, a, in an email etiquette class just because Bill Gates created it doesn't mean that we need to use it. <laughs> The, the, the only reason that anybody, and it was a law firm actually, John, that convinced me of when you use BCC is if it's a blast. It's an email blast, and everybody's BCC, so that if anybody accidentally replied to all, it would only come back to the original sender. Only reason why you should ever, ever, ever use BCC, because it's just sneaky otherwise, I think. Well, let's talk a bit, because you, you, you've all talked a bit about how you can look at yourself, and Patricia, you mentioned the please and thank yous and emails. If you work at a place where you have colleagues that they just really push for buttons and you feel like they're not being fair, et cetera, et cetera, how can you change yourself to get along better with people and just to maybe not take things so seriously at work in terms of your colleagues? Well, those may be two different things. How can you change <laughs> yourself versus, versus how can you take it not so seriously? Um, I, I would. My, my first response was, oh, they just have to get over it. But... You know, I, I, how can you get over it? Because that is hard for some people to get over it and move on. Yes, it is. Well, short short of therapy, I, seriously, if, if I if I found out that you know I I'm the problem, if I start to hear this from enough corners, you know, there's an old adage that if one person calls you a donkey, it's just one person's opinion. But if 50 people call you a donkey, you know, you better start braying and buy yourself a saddle because I think you're a donkey. You might, if you have a trusted friend somewhere in the organization who you can get feedback from, honest feedback, to tell you what is it, what behavior of yours is making people respond to you in a certain way, and then and then take a look at that behavior. Not personality. I think you always have to stay away from personality because people can't change their personalities. No, they can't. They, I, I agree with that. You can't change personality, but you <clears throat> you can change behavior. I think a lot of the sources of problems in organizations have to do with assumptions. People assume that they know the intentions of someone else when they don't really know the intentions. And so I try to get them to focus on what was actually said, what the action, what, what actually happened, not their perception of what happened. And a lot of times that's the source of the problem is these assumptions and perceptions of what's going on, not what actually happened. And a lot of my job is, is also trying to prevent people from acting on assumptions uh, in a way that, that cannot be taken back because you know, going to HR is one thing. That's that's one, one step in the continuum. Um, going to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission is, is a much more um, challenging and adversarial step, and then obviously, you know, following a lawsuit is is even uh, more than that. Um, getting a lawyer involved is is sort of below the EEOC step, um, and and you really want to be sure before you're acting on, and and you want to be sure of those assumptions and have some evidence that you know, your, your assumptions are correct before you're you, you charge off. I don't know that we really answered your question, Stephanie. I know you were asking about. How to- <laughs> Well, that's because I don't think you can. What Patricia is saying is true, that you really can't change someone's personality. But if you are finding that you are the source of the problem, they, they, then you need to change your behavior. You clearly need to check yourself. And I do think that what she said about finding a trusted source, I love that I've worked with people who I can go to them and close the door and say, give me the real scoop here because this is what I'm feeling, this is what I think I'm seeing, but I don't know for sure. I, I really need another pers- perspective on this. And what can I do better, or what can this person do better? So you do need you 
do need people who you can trust, who can give you that feedback. But I think over time she's right. You, you, if you hear it enough, you know. You know what the real problems are. Okay. Well, on the other hand, say that you're someone that you've, you've really taken a look at yourself and you realize, you know what, maybe a lot of these problems are me and I need to change, and you really feel that in your heart. How can you convince your colleagues you've had a problem with that you've turned over a new leaf and they, they can trust you? I don't think you can talk about it a whole lot. I think you just start doing it. You just start being trustworthy. You start behaving in a way that is credible, that is the opposite of how you were before, and maybe you do preface it with, you know, I know we had XYZ situation. I, I know I did not handle that well. You kind of own it. You have to to show that you're responsible for it but um, and that you regret whatever behavior and that you're learning from it. I do think people are forgiving. Um, and in a work situation, there's, there's really nothing worse than someone pretending something didn't happen because no one's really going to want to listen to you until you acknowledge, yes, that happened, yes, I made a mistake, but now I'm going to show you. And you just start showing them. And you, you just start showing them with your about it. It, it, you, in In one voila, change of your behavior, people aren't going to believe it. They're going to believe it when they see it the next day and the next day and the next day. And in, in some of my training sessions, because I have people who are sent to training, which is <laughs> never never a good thing. But if their manager or whoever has sent them has told them, this is why I'm sending you, I need you to work on such and such a behavior, I, I recommend to them, when you go back to your office, Try not to change absolutely everything that you're doing because you'll not be able to keep it up. And, and people will wonder, what happened to Tracy? <laughs> you know, she used to behave this way. She's, she's 180 degrees from what she used to be. All you have to do are minor little changes to your behavior, and, and it's something that you think that you can keep going and, and keep doing that behavior. And over time, people will begin to trust it. And even if you're awkward, at trying something differently. For instance, I, I had a manager the other day who said, I just, you know, I don't believe in coming in and saying hello to, to my employees. What, what, what does that have to do with anything? Why should that matter? And we managed, not just me, but everybody else in the class, managed to convince them that you set the tone as the manager. When you come in and are friendly in the morning and say hello, that sets the tone for the rest of the day for everybody else and how they're going to treat each other respectfully. So she finally got the message and said that, yes, in, in, indeed, that you know, she would do that. I said, but I'm going to feel really awkward doing it. But that's fine. That, that, you know, it's okay if, if, if you're feeling awkward. Your, your employees will at least see that you're trying something new, something different, and they will cut you slack because they see that you're trying to come around to their way of doing things. Let's switch gears a tiny bit. I know oftentimes, particularly with lawyers, you hear about workplace tensions because someone sees someone else as a threat. If you're seen as a threat, how can you do your job well and perhaps try to get along with that person who sees you as a threat. I, if I could jump in, I'll tell you, working in HR is interesting. When you come into an organization, I've, I've been in organizations that have had HR presence, so there's already an established culture with regard to the interaction with HR, and then I've also worked in organizations where there was no HR, but it was needed. And there are people who, along the lines of what John said earlier, that you know, if people are comfortable working with HR, they have a relationship, they can trust them. There are people who do not like working with HR and find it threatening to have that presence there as though we're going to manage for them. Some managers have you know, been intimidated. Will I be managing their staff for them? Am I going to tell them how to do everything? Um, so I've been in that situation myself as well as counseled employees with that, and it is, it is very tricky, and I tread very lightly, and I'm careful 
with how I assert myself and with what opinions I offer and when I offer them. And I say things like, would you like some feedback on that meeting? Would you like some constructive comments? Are you open to that? You know, I try to set the tone so that they know I'm not there to step on their toes. I'm not there to do their job. I'm there to help them. And over time, it's, it's similar to the other question, that over time they realize that I'm there as a good resource. And when they really need HR, boy, are they glad you're there for them when you back them up, when you help them through a crisis situation, and then you have a, you know, a good relationship with them. But it, it is difficult when someone sees you as a threat because they're worried about their own responsibilities, their own little kingdom, and that you're going to somehow come in there and take away from that. And so if you can show that you're not there to, you're not there to be a threat, you're there to be a help. So I, that's usually my advice is to tread carefully, though, with personalities. Yeah, that's a, um, I mean, a, a good point. I, a lot of the cases that, that I have arise out of situations where there are sort of competing threats um, or people seeing each other as threats, and mostly that's, that happens in a situation where you have a long-term employee with uh, significant seniority and then someone new comes in as their supervisor. Maybe it's somebody they worked with or maybe somebody you know, leapfrogged over them and got the job. They may not have even wanted the job, but they um, feel that they have, you know, this uh, institutional knowledge that they want to impart to the new to the new supervisor, and they see the supervisor somewhat as a threat to how established operations, how things are going forward, and you know how things are done, and um, and that's a concern. And so they start inserting themselves into the situation, and and then in turn, the supervisor, the new supervisor, sees this person with seniority as. As, as a threat, um, a threat to them and to their ability to prove themselves to, to upper management. And it becomes a very difficult situation, and, and it requires some you know, careful work on both parties. Uh, part of the one that the seniority needs to understand, there's a, you know, a new sheriff in town, and they have some ideas, and they have to be very careful about how they interact with them and how they express feedback uh, or, or want to offer assistance. I mean, uh, my suggestion is you don't offer it unless you're asked. And then the supervisor needs to be very, very careful about, you know, not unloading on the, the person and, and just realizing that they're stepping into a situation where, you know, there is a lot more seniority below them. And uh, they, that could be an advantage um, to them in, in, in uh, performing their job. And, John, just generally speaking, what kind of advice do you tend to give people on records keeping at work from an employment law point of view for, for a plaintiff, I think, if someone's unhappy? Well, that's a that's a very touchy situation um, because all the records within um, a, a corporate entity are the corporation's records. Um, it's not the individual's records um, unless they're actually given a document for their own personal use. You know, emails are part of the company records. Um, a personnel file, and many employees don't understand this. Their personnel file is the company's records. My advice to to employees that have a bad situation is is that they keep you know they keep their own records of what's going on at work but not on a company computer not at work something that they do when they get home um, they write down what happened and, and keep a, a record of what's going on contemporaneously so that if an, a lawyer needs to look at it or, or if they need to look back to it they can but it's not it doesn't become a company property in doing so so it's not wise for them to take a company email and forward it to their personal home address as part of their documentation. You know, I mean, that's a that's a very that's a gray area because if it's a personal email that they sent and then they're sending it home, there's arguments that that's perfectly okay. However, 
I've been in situations where um, company, uh, employees have been fired for doing that type of thing. It immediately raises suspicion because the corporate IT person can see that that's what they're doing, um, and the uh, uh, and then the company is concerned that they're actually sending not maybe you know some uh, reminder to to go to lunch with somebody, but you know some type of um, you know corporate secret or trade secret or confidential information, and it becomes a very serious problem. So I mean, I would. Advise people against doing that. If there's a if there's a, a copy of an email that you sent, um, you know, print it out um, and, and keep the copy. But, but I think sending things home is is kind of a red flag. I would agree with that too. I have to say though, the um, personnel record records that I've always maintained, nothing goes in those files that an employee has not signed or seen. So, if someone came to us um, and asked me, you know, can I have a copy of my employment file or can I have a copy of my last review or my last written warning or whatever, um, they have a right to see that, and I just make a note of whatever copies I make for them. But to me, there shouldn't be anything in there that they haven't seen. So a supervisor jotting down some derogatory comments about them would not go in that file unless they've actually seen it and signed it. Yeah, there's – and, from, you know, from, from – the employment attorney's perspective, um, when we request personnel files in, in litigation, we're requesting personnel files, but we're also requesting the, you know, the manager file and the HR file, and because the, there's often multiple files where where documents about a, a, an employee's performance will go, and many companies are also are not quite as on the mark as Tracy's, I'm sure, um, and uh, and uh, you do find some unusual things in personnel files. But. Yes, and I have I, in auditing files, I have seen unusual things and had to remove medical records and things like that when I've come across them. But you're right, I I have a very thick um, employee relations file typically when I'm working for an organization that has all kinds of notes in there, just about someone coming to talk to me and what we what we discussed and what the issue was and the date, and that certainly could be used for further progress, if there were progressive discipline down the road, if need be. So, yeah, I can see why you would ask for those. I have a question for all of you. In your experience, what personality types tend to be the happiest at work? Um, Patricia, would you like to take that first? Well, my personality style, of course. are, are you talking about the, the, the four, specifically the, the styles that, say, from a Myers-Briggs or from a DISC perspective? Are you thinking about um, just it, Or maybe maybe to better phrase it, what are some ways of dealing with people and just an outlook on life that tends to create folks who are more happy at work than others? Oh, okay. I, 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 my opinion is I think people who are who like the people element of things and who realize that, yes, we're here to do a job, I, I get it, but... We can also have fun doing the job, and we can do it as a team. Uh, perhaps you would call those people the, the kind of people who have the glasses half full uh, mentality, as opposed to those you know who are half empty. I, I think any personality style, I guess, that goes to any of the extremes is not going to be happy because they're going to be to take either. I can't remember if Tracy or John said it. They're going to be isolated if they're if they're an extreme personality type and they think that everybody should be meeting them on their own ground and see the world the way they do as opposed to trying to adapt to other people and how that other people have different ways of doing things i think i think that's the person who's going to be happiest is the open minded i can i can learn from everybody i i don't i don't know all the com- completely correct ways to do things i'm i'm open to learn other ways of doing things like back in the, in the in, on the playground, who was the kid who was happiest on the playground? The one who could get along with the most kids on the playground. Mm-hmm. I, I would agree with that. I think also those who are less interested in drama 
those who are more interested in goals, who are goal-oriented, but yet, you know, and, and they are, they're kind of the middle-of-the-road people who do see the glass as half full. I would agree that optimists tend to be happier at work because they don't take themselves so seriously, and they also tend to be involved with many other things other than just work. When I see an employee who work is everything for them, they worry me because it's too extreme. They, take, they tend to take things very personally. They get very upset very quickly. They're the ones that are coming to you saying this isn't right or that's not right, and this people, you know, aren't, they, they tend to not be getting along with everyone because it's, it's everything for them, and they don't have a good perspective. And it, so it seems to be those who have kind of the middle-of-the-road perspective and a healthier um, expectation of what work should be for them, that it is a job, it is a career, and they can care about it without, you know, bringing it, and without trying to get everyone to agree with them all the time. And those are those extreme personalities who tend to thrive a little bit on the drama. Um, so those who tend to just, you know, understand also what's expected of them. If expectations from the organization side are given to them or from the managerial side and they know that they can meet those, those people are also pretty satisfied because I've also seen very balanced people get very frustrated and unhappy at work when the organization is not clearly outlining what they're supposed to be doing. So I, I think that can create unhappiness too. John, what do you think? Oh, I, would, I think I would agree with both what Patricia and, and Tracy said, everything they said about that. I mean, I think that certainly the, the glass is half full um, type of personality does much better. Conspiracy theorists don't do, do well, uh, typically. People that believe that other people's intentions are generally good will get along much better than those that, that feel like people are out to get them. Okay, and that's everything that I have for today. Would anyone like to add anything else? I guess um, in terms of of getting along with other people, and we, we talked about the the adapting, and also about looking, you know, inside yourself. Is there some way that I'm contributing to this as as well? I I believe very much in, and maybe this goes back to your question of what makes people happier. If you want to work well with other people, and and if you if you want them to want to work well with you. You really got to be thinking in terms of what can I do for them before you're asking what can I get them to do for me. They, they talk about it networking. They talk about everywhere that ask first what you can do for other people before you're asking you know what they can do for you. That that just that has seemed to work for me in terms of influencing other people, motivating other people, and just making it a, a, a more harmonious work environment. Just thinking first what I can do for other folks. Okay. Well, thank you all very much for your time. I really appreciate it. This ABA Journal podcast has been brought to you by Westlaw Next, the most advanced technology combined with market-leading content and West's history of trusted editorial excellence. Helping legal professionals save time is what they've been doing for over 125 years. Learn more at westlawnext.com.